Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now, for this week's episode. Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host Stephen Platt, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week we're going to look back at a film, a classic from the 1980s, it is The Goonies. That's right, we are watching The Goonies and as always we have somebody who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it's Anna Sheehy! How are you Anna? Hello, very good, thank you. Uh, Anna, it's been a little while since you've been on the programme. Uh, have you done anything interesting in the last couple of months? Uh, um, I did get married during a global pandemic. That was pretty cool. Um, oh. But apart from that, it's been pretty chill. How yes. about you? <laughs> uh, me? Uh, I didn't get married during a global pandemic. Uh, because um... Probably a good decision. All around, it's like it's not a, uh, an ideal time to plan things. But yes, um, um, we we had on your uh, your lovely husband David Cox last week. Uh, so now I get to say the other half of the congratulations. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's it's really lovely. So um, married in a pandemic and hasn't seen the Goonies. So what I would like to know is, what do you know about the Goonies? I know so little that this is going to be embarrassing and I really hope it's the right film that I'm thinking of or else this is just going to be a very odd thing for me to have said but I feel like there's a boy in the film I know it's about a group of boys and I think there's a boy in the film who lifts up his top and then does something funny with his tummy I don't know if he's being bullied or if he does it on purpose as like a trick and then he does something and that's like a gif and I know that people know that and it's like a whole thing and that is it that is all i know about the goonies that is a-okay i think there's there's a lot of people in a similar boat that is that going... movie this that is the goonies though that isn't another little boy who does a tummy <laughs> trick uh no the tummy trick okay, is, is in this film so um okay yes. good good i'm really glad excellent no i was i was kind of secretly hoping you were gonna go yeah i think spike milligan and peter sellers are in it but that's a different goon <laughs> Um, excellent. Well, you've got a uh, fresh face, wide-eyed optimism coming into this film. Uh, joining us as the hardened cynic who knows everything Goonies, it is Mr. Scott McArdle. Uh, humbug. <laughs> how are you, Scott? Yeah, I'm good, Stephen. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. It's been a while since we've uh, had you on, uh, and it's your first uh, pandemic-style uh, appearance on the show. So how, how has life been for you recently? Oh, yeah, you know, moved house, didn't get married, um, finished some PlayStation games. That's about it. Nothing super exciting. Um, yeah, just chilling out. Happy to be on a podcast. Oh, it's lovely to have you here. And uh, you have seen The Goonies. So in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way, uh, what can somebody like Anna, who hasn't seen this film, expect? I have no idea what this movie is like coming to as an adult. This was like, there were like a couple of movies that were really big in my family when I was a kid. And it's like The Goonies and The Labyrinth. Um, uh, the Goonies is less predatorial than The Labyrinth though. So that's kind of good. Um, it's cool. I watched it again like a month ago, I think. Um, yeah, when the, when the pandemic was happening, I watched it again actually just by coincidence. Um, it's really funny. It's... Uh, like a great adventure, kid adventure story that like cannot be made anymore, that like people are too jaded and would be like, that, that'd never happen now. Like it's one of those great classic, kind of like Stand By Me. Um, it's in that vein, but probably a lot more comic. And Josh Brolin is like not a bad guy for once. Uh, well, you know, he had, to, uh, he had to learn how to become a baddie, I guess. And, uh, you know, he gets to build up to playing a bad guy in everything else that he's in. Um, I'm pretty sure this is actually his first film, um, which, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to revisit that because um, I've just got his 
purple butt chin Thanos face in my head. So it'll be <laughs> interesting to see. Ah, no, he snapped. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, cool. Perfectly balanced. With all of that being said, shall we watch The Goonies? Yes. Excellent. All right, for those of you listening at home, uh, load up those streaming services and shout, holy S-H-I-T, as we watch The Goonies. Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching The Goonies, and by we, I of course mean Scott McArdle. Hello! And Anna Sheehy. Hey! Anna, that was your first time watching The Goonies. What did you think? Wow. Um, as a genuine, and I can say this from like the bottom of my heart, really big fan of the National Treasure series, I felt like this would have been... Um, yeah, a really incredible movie for me to watch as a child. <laughs> um, I think it really would have fed into that, like, yeah, like a sort of passion for the ridiculous unknown. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I definitely think as a kid, I would have gotten a lot more out of it than as an adult. Just like the the tension and the the drama of it all would have felt like a lot more intense as a kid. Mm. Um, but no, I thought it was fantastic. I think it's... It's the first time I've watched this film in a long time. I think I was a kid the last time I saw it. And The, the Goonies was never one that was one of my favourites in terms of it wasn't one that was on high rotation for, for me, or at least in my family. But um, it's it's a joy. It, it really is such a, such a fun... Um, just a fun sentiment that's been captured. It was something you were saying beforehand, Scott, about, about this film just feels as though it is, it, it is just adventure. How was it watching it again for the first time in a month, Scott? Uh, yeah, it's about the same as about a month ago. Um, okay. This film is like always a classic to me. I think it's aged pretty well. I think it could go with a couple of, um, like, cause you've obviously got the in intro format of this style and structure. You've got the kids and you've got the teenagers. And I think it could use a couple more female characters in the kids group. Um, and I think Andy, could probably be rewritten a little bit. Um, mm. uh, so I think it's um, it's definitely lacking in female representation. Um, but overall, like I think it still really holds up. I think it's so much fun, um, mm. and I think it's so funny. It it is very funny. I was surprised how much of it retained that humor um, because when I watched it as a youngster, the, the character I found really funny was was Chunks, uh, just because he's an idiot basically he's he's like the fact is he's just he's he's in an entirely different film almost and he was quite funny but this time around and i I wonder if you'd agree anna as a first time viewer i actually found mouth probably the funniest character he was actually very interesting to watch because initially i thought i knew exactly who he was like he's being a real dickhead he's like making mum jokes about all the other boys and that stuff and then I think it was especially the scene um, at the very beginning, really, where he um, talks to the Spanish housekeeper that they've hired to help them move and translates in brackets for the mum. And initially I was like, oh, he's just going to, he's going to pretend because he's like into the mum. He's going to just be like a garbled, like primary level Spanish. And then he starts translating, but translating really well a very different story about heroin and cocaine and the sex attic and all this stuff. And I was actually very surprised that part of the story is that he has incredible like talent for Spanish and languages, which is really cool. Mm. Always it, keep your drugs separate. Yeah, yeah you got to separate cocaine <laughs> at the bottom, heroin in the middle, marijuana at the top. It makes sense. Yeah, it's the one that's the most frequently used. So you put it in the top drawer. Yeah. He knows what he's talking about. Um, yeah, it's it, it is really fun. I mean, the 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 main obvious sort of point of comparison to something that's contemporary would be Stranger Things, um, which clearly was massively riffing on the Goonies amongst other, amongst other things. But I think it's really actually quite interesting seeing just how well um, on reflection, Stranger Things replicated that, dynamic of the group because there were a lot of characters in this there's a lot of characters but I feel as though I've I 
I kind of managed to learn all their names, uh, which is not something you get in a lot of big group films. Um, you know, something like um, The Hobbit, for example, with its 13 dwarves. Um, they never really, you knew two or three of them, but you never really got to know, you know, the difference between a biffer and a bomber and a whoever. Um, whereas in this, you know, the, uh, you, you have, you know, Data with all of his gadgets, and you've got Mouth with the jokes, and uh, Mikey, who's just so sincere. And it's it, it really felt as though, in less than two hours, you really got to know what this group was. I think it's very impressive. And I just thought it, something really massive came up for me with yeah, the comparison to Stranger Things because I hadn't watched this. And just the bike scenes where they all have this form of transportation and they're all joined together by that. Because I was actually part of a scooter gang when I was 13. And really? one time we were like, there's this dog that's gone missing and we're going to find the dog. <laughs> and it was actually quite a big deal because it was rumored that the dog had been stolen to be sold because um, it was like a really expensive dog. We'd never found that dog. We didn't get very far. But for about three days, our entire life was like centered around finding clues and like scooting around our neighborhood. And it brought so much of that back. It's just like being a child and having that form of transportation is like so revolutionary. Mm. And yeah, anyway, I just love that bit. I mean, that's, that's really lovely. And Scott, I feel like you're about to say that that is Sean, the super Sean Astin, strong. <laughs> Sean Astin is clearly being like, he's come on set and they're like talking about like how they're going to pitch it. And all the kids are like, oh, I'm going to make this joke. I'm going to do this joke. And Sean Astin's very clearly like, I'm going to pitch this because one day I'm going to be in the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and everyone's like, whatever, kid. And then, no, 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 no. I'm going to do some quite serious acting in this film. Mm. And it, it, he really stands out for me in like a really good way. Like I think mm. I think he's so talented, and I think he he has a couple of different speeches. Like there's the um our time our time speech at the bottom of the well. Oh my um, god! That like while he's doing it, I was doing it in the lounge, and <laughs> there are little sections that like I do in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one is when he's with One Eyed Willie, and there's this oh, like so sweet. where he's like um you've been waiting for me haven't you like i'd be oh it's so good it's such a good moment and i think it's really i think you're right it is very telling that that sean astin's performance as as mikey walsh um it's it is really really strong and it is i think it's very important because he's kind of the emotional heart of the film there isn't a huge mm. amount of that emotion away from his character obviously when you know they're worried about losing the house and his brother is um you know gives him that hug where he almost has to drag him off the balcony with the hug um he, he's sort of carrying that emotional resonance really of the story and he's also the one that most believes in the adventure like obviously he, he believes that the treasure is going to help fix all their problems um and it's but it but it's him that really carries that through and pushes that on and i don't know maybe he had some insider knowledge about um lord of the rings coming up in like 15 years time <laughs> maybe he was like no i really need to do this um but he's he's so good and i think that's one of the things that really impressed me watching this film again is i absolutely believed every single one of those kids as well as characters uh mm. they they I, they fit into certain archetypes, but they weren't just those archetypes. Like Chunks, Chunks was like, you know, the the sort of fat kid archetype of like always obsessed about food. But they also wove in this whole boy who cried wolf thing. And um, I thought that was really, really quite lovely uh, how that worked. And um, and again, as you, as you were saying, Anna, with uh, Mouth, you know, you think he's going to be one particular character the whole time, maybe like Troy the jock, you know, someone who's just a bit belligerent and, and always not necessarily a nice character. But like, he's that moment in the wishing well where he takes the coin back and says, my wish didn't come true. And I'm like, I yeah. want to know more. I want to know what's going mm. on there. Yeah. And then like at the very end meeting Data's dad, and that's like such a sweet moment. And I feel like he's had like a, he's not maybe the most well fleshed out of all the, boys because his gimmick is so physical and obvious like he invents stuff and that's really cool and you want to see what he's inventing and you want to see what he's doing and then he does have that moment where he's like upset in the boat because everyone's like dissed his inventions and not trusting him to like know what to do because they've been failing a bit Mm. um but that moment at the very end like really capped him off as like oh he's like inspired by his dad and his dad's this really sweet dude who's encouraging him and i just really love that yeah and that, that those two lines of um 
with the with the subtitles where it's like you can't hug a photograph my greatest invention is you i was like oh that's really good <laughs> chris columbus is just like such a good writer I, I think he like has just written and directed some of the most iconic childhood movies from from the harry potter the early harry potter films through to mrs doubtfire through to home alone like mm. he's just one of the the greats of formative filmmaking like the films that form your childhood mm. he's lurking somewhere amongst them and he just comes up with such iconic not even just characters but also the villains like the fratellis are so good in this film <laughs> yeah she is just so funny and the 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 Italian opera singing brother is just like a stroke of genius that comes from no logic. Um, just that bit, that bit where he's like, you always preferred him to me. And she slaps him and is like, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Mar, Mar Fratelli played by Anne Ramsey is, is a particular, a particular treat. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, after they get to the, the bit where the, there's the piano puzzle and the room's fallen away and she figures out, oh, you can just walk around the very edge with a still bit of brick and like almost chastises the boys like, come on, think. It's, <laughs> it, it, it is lovely. She died quite soon after this, I remember. I think she, died, she, she didn't have quite a long career after this. And this no, is like... An, a... Yeah, Anne Ramsey, uh, she passed away three years after this film came out. Um, she was... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. This that's it's fine, you know. We, 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 listeners at home sometimes we weave it in. We make it sound natural. Uh but yeah, it's um <laughs> she did she did pass away um a couple of years after this. I think it's um quite unfortunate really because she's she's very good in this and this was her her biggest role. Um she did do a few other films mostly in the late 80s, like Throw Mama to the Train and uh, Deadly Friend. They were 87 and 86. Uh, Meet the Hollowheads, um, which came out after she died. Um, you know, she was working and getting those roles, and this was kind of her big break, but sadly we didn't get to see too much more of her. But I'm really glad we have this, because she's so good as the villainous mother. Yeah, it, it's such an interesting character in that, like, you look at... Um female villains in history and you look at your Cruella de Vils and your Lady Macbeths and there's, there's an element of grace and, and feminine, uh, femininity and, and, and sexual allure to them that, that were obviously most of them were written by men um, to appeal to men um, or to, to criticize women. But you look at her and she's this like Boston working class mobster who's like uh, a villainous version of the manager in Marvelous Miss Maisel. Um, mm. Like, he's just like so real and rough as guts. And it's just this like single mum who's got like a child with like a physical and learning disability and these two other idiot ch criminal children. And I just think they're such an underrated part of this movie. And she brings me like such joy because I think she's just such a great female character. I think she's so funny mm. and like so menacing and scary. Um, and just a bit where she like skit when, when they're in the restaurant and um, Josh Brolin comes uh, and gets them all out of there, like grabs them. It's like, we're leaving, we're leaving. And as they're like screaming, she comes out of the frame to the left and is like, ah, and they all leave and the door closes. And she's like, kids suck. It's yeah. just such a stupid scene. It is. And I feel as though it is amazing that this film holds up as well as it does, because there's a lot of things in this film that just feel a bit stupid, but, but mm. they work because the point of this is that it is a, a, a children's adventure. Like it doesn't have to make sense. You know, the, the, the fact that there is um, a police officer who's um, constantly like, oh yeah, like that time you made up that thing and just like not following up on a, on an actual criminal report for ages and things like that is quite fun. Um, Anna, I do have to ask, cause you were a first time watcher of this film. There's a few aspects that I'm curious what a 2020 first time watcher um, would have. And I have to start with the character of Sloth. Uh, what did you think of, mm, of yes. uh, Slothy? Um, yes. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, I'd actually recently this week come across some like specific sort of 
articles written by people about like social stigma around people with facial differences. Mm. So this, I think, hit even more differently than possibly usually just because I've been thinking about it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we sort of have this like underlying assumption in the story, I guess, that he also has um, some level of perhaps learning disability or yeah, we don't really know his deal, but we know that everyone's horrified by him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in the end he's accepted, which is wonderful. And him and Chunk have this really strong connection, which is, I think, supposed to be this sort of underdog to underdog, um, bullied and teased, you're bullied and teased, we understand each other sort of thing. And that connection is really cute. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty fucked up looking prosthetic. <laughs> um, <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of, I mean, I guess in the end he has some agency, but he's still sort of, he, all of the things he does are based on relationships. Um, like he's still obviously has like this relationship with his mom because he saves his family which mm. makes sense but they've tied him up in a basement like that's messed up mm. um so yeah that's a bit of a loose end as like at the end it's like you're gonna live with me and i'm like that's an interesting statement for a child to make very yeah. sweet very mm. lovely <laughs> i don't think that's accurate as to what yeah. happened i don't think mr um, and mrs chunk are gonna be too happy about that <laughs> i don't yeah did we see them on the beach during that scene i don't know um uh, they yeah they, they, bit, they but... brought in the pizza <laughs> oh that's right yeah <laughs> um which he used the pizza box he used to protect chunk from the police um sloth from the police with so very sweet yeah um but yeah i think obviously that probably would have been done very differently now mm. and as much as his character arc is in the end a positive one um i just don't think that's necessarily the sort of character we need anymore I think there's a really interesting moment at the end of his character arc that like you don't expect from the 80s which is like when she talks about how she dropped him and uh, it, it confronts the it sort of mentions the abuse that's happened to him um, and then uh, uh, yeah I think it's interesting how he then beats them he that he then chooses to not be like lured in by her and and uh, but then he does save them at the end I think intended or unintended, there's an interesting little like the cycle of abuse and parental abuse. Cause she's so abusive. She's so horrible. Mm, yeah. Um, but him breaking that cycle of abuse is really yeah, interesting. Like That's inherently what... being kind hearted and not wanting them to die. Cause if he yeah. had let them die, we would have been like, well, he was obviously kind, but he's like been affected by these awful people. Doesn't surprise you that he would let them die. And the fact that he doesn't is very important. Mm. Um, but also does sort of like smack of, uh, yeah, like the power that abusers have over abused people as well as like, anyway, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. I'd be really interested, like, and why the Fratelli's interest, interest me is like, I'd love to know more and about like what happens after that with the brothers and stuff like that, because I think they're, they're shackled to her more than sloth is in a lot of ways. Mm, and, for sure. The, the like insidious emotional abuse she has over her um, other other sons uh, who aren't chained in a basement um, is, is I think a really interesting aspect of this movie that is that is pretty dark and I I think they don't necessarily make light of it as much as you'd expect a movie from the 80s to but it's also just like not tackled um, yeah as, well as it would be in 2020 you'd hope there's yeah. a lot in this movie that's a lot darker than things that I remember watching as a kid and I did watch a lot of like classics, but like all this stuff with that dead body they find, um, mm. like constantly being pushed back up <laughs> and Chunk is stuck in the freezer with the dead body and then back in the back of the truck with a dead body. And it gets so much screen time. Like I feel like a lot of the time now we're just sort of like, and there is a body and we cut away and it's all sort of, um, well, you know, he's there and his hand falls down, but the whole time, like, here's his face. Here's his, to be fair, very small gunshot wound through the skull, but it's still there. Um, and his really awful makeup to make him look, um, yeah, drained of blood and all this stuff. And that would have messed me up as a kid. I do not doubt I would have nightmares about that very specific scenario, being stuck in a freezer with a dead body. Oh God. Yeah. I was also really, um, I, I suppose pleasantly surprised but still you know it's not great uh you were saying before about how the character of andy was written um scott i, mm. I found um there's something about the way that we depict or we previously we socially have depicted um 
creepy teen boy douchebags. Um, and I kind of feel like this film, it just about kind of gets away with it because the character of Troy is such a small part of the film. But like the the shot where he's like adjusting the mirror to like look either down a top or up a skirt yeah. or whatever it is, yeah. and like just for the listeners at home, Scott did one of the biggest eye rolls I've ever seen in terms of like that bloody dickhead, which it was, and I think that's a really effective visual way of telling that. But it's something that's really present in a lot of films from this time period, but but more so, um, and I think that it's interesting that maybe because this film has more of the focus on the kids than it does the teens that we don't see much more of that um but but i did find some of the um i guess the the sexual not politics but the sexual aspects of the story to be quite interesting not necessarily something that i think was done correct but it, at the very least a lot of it felt quite honest with the yeah. How, how Andy was interacting with with both the brothers, with um, with Brand and, and with Mikey. I thought yeah. overwhelmingly it felt like quite an honest representation of um, some girls at that age. You can't generalize. I think the only time it felt out of character was when she was having what seemed to be sort of like maybe a minor psychotic break and was saying, yeah, "Is yeah. it that bad that he was looking down my skirt? Is it that bad? I'm in a cave now and this sucks." And she's having this moment. I was like, "Oh, what's wrong with her now?" Um, and I think earlier in the movie, like you see her and um, Brand have a laugh because she's left this guy because he's a jerk and he threw him off a cliff in like a weird tricycle accident. Mm. Um, she's left him and then she elbowed him in the nose for adjusting the mirror. Yeah. And they both laugh because he's an asshole and what he was doing was wrong and Brand laughs along with it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, apart from... <laughs> yeah some of the like the complaining about oh you, you guys are whining it's fine when they're obviously in a very stressful um and life life endangering situation i think it was a, yeah a lot better of a representation than i might have expected given the time period honestly and i really liked that there was andy and her other friend saf or i don't think i ever really learned her name in the movie i'll be honest um, i don't think they said I, yeah, I think it's Steph. I think that's that's Steph. all we get. Okay. My glasses. I really like Steph. My glasses. <laughs> my glasses. Um, yeah, when she's talking about like all the wishes and dreams, and she had a little bit uh, of a different character that I enjoyed. Like she was actually quite distinct from Andy. They weren't just sort of two peas in a pods, best mm. girlfriends who thought the same thing. Like um, Steph was clearly annoyed when all the kissing was going on and was like, oh, it's disgusting. I can't even look at it. Oh my God. Like, mm. um, clearly two very different ideas about what was a appropriate <laughs> their age group and what they thought was cool and yeah I thought that was fun especially I think in that like age um for girls there's a lot of like impetus in movies to just massively sexualize every aspect <laughs> of what they do and what they're saying and why they're interacting with people and to have Steph be there as like probably who I was when I was that age which was if if people around me were like, oh yeah, I really have a crush on Ryan. I was like, that's disgusting. <laughs> I can't believe <laughs> you have a crush on a boy. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, so I thought that like dichotomy was kind of fun. I think compared to his contemporaries, Chris Columbus, like is just not a dick about mm. gender. <laughs> respects, I think, like he respects women a lot more than John Hughes. Um, yeah. You look at anything John Hughes make. You you look at also stuff like you look at movies like um, Revenge of the Nerds and stuff like that at the mm -hmm. time. And it's mm -hmm. just like I think Chris Columbus and the way he depicts relationships between men and women, um, uh, whether it's in in this, whether it's in Mrs. Doubtfire, um, whether he's working off something like Harry Potter, um, mm -hmm. uh, and if we ignore pixels. Um, if we ignore anything that he made north of the year 2000, mm. um, he's just like, he's just got his head screwed on. He's just not a dick. And in this, like his main characters, he's looking at classism in, in, in middle America, in America. He's looking mm. at um, small town hierarchies of wealth. Mm. Um, he, he's, I mean, the, the goondocks, it's poverty. He's looking mm. at mm. poor kids. He's looking at a poor side of town who their entire neighborhood's going to get bulldozed for a golf, golf course. Mm. Um, and 
that's why I love the country club scene. And that's oh, why so I think like, Donald Trump needs to be there at that time. It's I'm, just because... Like, yeah, I'm fine with fun Donald there. Trump not being there. <laughs> I think he's in Home Alone 2. I want him to be on that toilet when it jets upwards and I want him to yell daddy because it's him. <laughs> we need to make fun of him because he's the kind of dick at a demolition neighbourhood for... Well, he demolished whatever he wanted. Mm. Um, this is very uh, specific, but did anyone understand the soap necklace? There's a man who walks into the shower yeah, who's wearing a, a very short necklace of soap. Um, it's it's for the um, convenience of bringing in your own hygiene product, but of course soap is slippery. So soap ah. on a rope. It was actually quite common in the UK in the uh, sort of mid 20th century, like your 50s to your 70s. Um, soap on a rope. It it's unusual to see it with someone just wearing it, but the idea was that... It just didn't it, seem fancy at all. It seemed very unfancy for this, like, everyone else is sort of enjoying yeah. themselves, this, like, classy establishment, and this man comes in with an almost complete bar of soap hanging around his neck, like a very gaudy medallion, and mm. it uh, it threw me for a bit. But that it, entire it, sequence was really I good. I thought it was a response to coronavirus. <laughs> My, just for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's... um, Yeah, Couldn't no, I was... Pleasantly surprised to see Soap on a Rope make a rare appearance in a Hollywood <laughs> blockbuster, but there it is. Um, I mean, you use Soap on a Rope, Stephen? I, when, I, uh, when I go to the country club, um, yes, I do actually. I, I like Soap on a Rope, um, but it's it's liquid soap, so it doesn't stay on very well. Um, so it's not like black and gold hanging around your neck. <laughs> no, no, sadly not. I do have to say, um, one of the sequences in this film that I was really impressed by is the opening of the film after the jailbreak where oh, we see the ca the car chase going through town and we get introduced to so many aspects of the town and it's so good and scott you look like you have things to say about that it's so good it's like the best opener it's just so much money so much planning that is the like biggest logistical nightmare of the entire film to do, mm. like everything else is sets. Everything else, everything in the case, it's all just sets. But this is just like a logistical nightmare that they're like, yeah, we're gonna start the scene with the most complicated, we're gonna start the movie with the most complicated scene. So good. Yeah, and I, I think it's, as I was watching it, it was just one of those things of going, oh, I think we're in good hands. Like, I, I mean, I remember enjoying mm. the film, but watching it as an adult, I just felt reassured where it's like, you guys know what you're doing. This is a story about the town. We are seeing the town. I felt that was really important as well because we spend so little time in the town, what we are protecting. It, it, in many ways, it is like the Lord of the Rings. Not only is Sean Astin there, but there's this idea of home, which they want to protect and save. But we don't spend anywhere near the majority of the runtime of the film in the home location. It's in this otherworldly underground pirate ship kind of uh, area with death at every corner. And I, I just felt that that opening sequence was such a clever way of showing what home was. I did have this, um, this brief, I think three minute stint where I thought I had the movie cracked and I understood it was happening at the very beginning mm. because I'd seen the picture of the cover with the Goonies, the boys, and I did think that Ma Fratelli did look like a grown version of Chunk and that these were the characters in the future <laughs> and they were breaking one of them out of prison. And then we were going to go back to the backstory to know why they got into prison. Like they turned into like a gang and they were like regetting their own treasure, which is why they were in prison. And I was convinced that I was like, oh, I see it. I see the resemblance. Mm. <laughs> it's very embarrassing now. But um, yeah, I was like, oh yeah, it's like, oh, now they're in prison, but they're going to like get something from the town that they left in the jailhouse. Like, I get it. I get it. Um, yeah. For a solid three minutes. And then we started actually getting introduced to the children characters and I was like oh that's not that's not it at all but it was fun living in that for a bit uh, I really my favorite like part of the movie is the first 30 minutes I think like when we're at that house on that attic. Sleepy, oh, God. The sleepy afternoon the stormy afternoon going into the attic then the post-storm riding to I, I think it's so like atmospherically um, heavy and beautiful and um, like who doesn't want to go on a treasure like find out about buried treasure on a like a, a Saturday afternoon when you're inside because of a storm mm. um, with your best friends um, 
I think it's that first shot through the trees when they get off their bikes and you yeah. see those giant formations in the water. Like that actually blew me away. I was like, where is this? I need to go there. Like, this is where I want to find buried treasure. This mm. is where I want, like, this is an incredible childhood. Um, yeah. So I absolutely agree with you. It's just like that beginning was so atmospheric and really set mm. up so much of everything else that happened. And I think the film honors that throughout itself the set's really lovely culminating of course in the pirate ship which is a really gorgeous set and i've never tried ranking my favorite film pirate ship sets um but i think this would be right up there it's it's it it reminded me a lot of the set from hook um but the thing with the set from hook is that Mm -hmm. was made to be elaborate and over the top because hook is actually kind of more like a pantomime slash musical in its presentation of Neverland. This pirate ship was very, you know, very spectacular, but it felt more grounded in the reality of what a pirate ship filled with dead bodies would look like. There were so many skeletons. Every every <laughs> shot, there was a new skeleton, and I loved it. It feels very Treasure Island, mm. like legitimate, yes. scary Treasure Island. Yeah, it's... It, it Look, it's just a really, really well-considered, well-thought-out um, film from that perspective. We haven't really discussed um, Josh Brolin that much uh, yet, but I feel like we should touch on him before we get to the trivia. Um, Anna, I thought uh, he was really great. Um, I remembered him as this kind of like, you know, typical sort of older teen boy uh kind of like you know oh he's kind of you know he's a bit rough on his his brother sometimes but he's looking out for him but as a genuine first time viewer to this film what did what did you think of uh of brand yes brand i couldn't work out if they were saying um I, i'd never seen someone shorten branded into brand before and the subtitles kept coming up and i'm like no that's wrong it's, that can't be his name that's not a normal person name but it is um he was lovely um, yeah, I actually really appreciate it. I have three older brothers and obviously my perspective as like a little sister is quite different on what mm. brothers are. But I think in a lot of media, I've sort of seen that very much like, oh, this is my kid brother and his friends. And God, I've got to hang out with my kid brother and his friends. And that can be legitimate. But I think more often than not, um, you know, if we like our siblings, we kind of get along with their friends. And I really enjoyed that in this film that he was like kind of in it for them as well. Like, and he was a really good brother and he could tell that his um, his sibling was having a really hard time with the move and like, yeah, hugs him on the porch and looks after him and is like, keeps trying to sort of claim that he's like the biggest and the, he's the one in charge of the journey. Mm. And then sort of slightly gets pushed to the side as he's, as you said before, not actually the real focal point of the film. Um, his younger brother is, but no, I thought he was a sweet character. And it's really odd to see a young Josh Brolin. I don't think I've seen him younger than like 35 before and anything so it's pretty cool and scott I, I do have to say when they tied him to the chair um i did put this in the messenger chat but i just went straight to uh, avengers <laughs> infinity war and just went oh i've seen this scene before four smaller people climbing on top of the big josh brolin what, what are they gonna do i'm surprised people haven't made like more memes about like infinity <laughs> war meets goonies yeah it was pretty much the yeah. same thing they're all looking for treasure yeah, they're all looking for these stones, which ultimately end up resetting the equilibrium of the world they live in. So, you know, yeah. just say, yeah, yeah. If you wanted to watch Avengers Endgame, you could have just watched The Goonies and basically got the same story. True. Uh, guys, would you like some trivia about The Goonies? Yeah. Absolutely. All of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. Uh, The first bit of trivia we've got is, uh, when rocks are falling from the cave, uh, Ki Hoi Kwan, who plays Data, screams, Holy S-H-I-T! He said he spelled the expletive because his mother made him promise not to use any bad language in the movie. Oh, that's so He's the only one. Everyone swears <laughs> so much in this movie. Yeah, uh, there, there are nineteen. <laughs> Second season of Strange. Oh my god! Really? Yeah. yeah. Didn't seem like that many. But there are. Uh, admittedly, a lot of them are probably like in the middle of action sequences oh, where there's shit. lots of other yeah. sound. But yeah, I, 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 and I was like, I wonder when the first one's going to be. And then Chunk says it when he's watching the cop chase right at the beginning. He just goes, "Oh shit!" Like that. There's <laughs> <laughs> like. Full of like strawberry milkshake. Yeah, <laughs> he squished his pizza against the glass. <laughs> uh, he was such a gross child. I loved him. 
God. Um, according to Sean Astin, he was allowed to keep the treasure map that was used in the film. Uh, but, but, and this is going to break your hearts a little bit. Several years later, his mother, Patty Duke, discovered it, thought it was a piece of trashed paper, and threw it away. Most despicable. You, you both, well, <laughs> it, it's amazing how horrified they looked. And I was, I, when I found this trivia before we watched the film, I was like, oh, I, I think I remember the treasure map being important. So I included it. <laughs> and then watching this, I was like, what are you doing, Patty Duke? No! <laughs> <laughs> that she didn't even watch the movie. Yeah, uh, it was just, um, yeah, just just one of those things where it's like, yeah, that that Goonies treasure map is gone forever now. No one will ever find uh, One-Eyed Willie. It's the way he wants it. Yeah, which is, by the way, um, such a great innuendo-y pirate name. I always like pirate names when they're a bit innuendo-y. <laughs> I think One-Eyed <laughs> Willie is uh, top really of the like a dick. Yeah, all solid. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the pirate ship itself was uh, an entirely real set. All the shots were filmed in the ship, even when they were down in the underneath bits. Um, after the film, it was offered to anyone who would take it. Nobody wanted it, probably because they had nowhere to store this massive ship. So it was eventually scrapped. Ah, oh, that seems like the sort of thing Las Vegas would buy. Yeah, yeah well, apparently not. Like, it's a Steven Spielberg movie. Mm. Why did no one want that pirate ship? It's like being like, does anyone want an animatronic dinosaur? Everyone's like, yes. <laughs> yes, I would. I'll make the room for an animatronic dinosaur. Can live on my pirate ship. <laughs> uh, the cast was not allowed to see the pirate ship before their scene was shot, as the uh, director, Richard Donner, wanted to catch their genuine reactions at the size and scope of it. When they did see it, Josh Brolin was so surprised, he exclaimed, holy shit! And the scene had to be reshot. <laughs> oh, oh, that shit wasn't what? allowed? Why? <laughs> I think maybe because they were trying to retain that kind of like majesty of, of the big reveal. <laughs> and it would have been spoiled by, you know, bloody Thanos uh, just going, holy shit! <laughs> music, sweeping music, no dialogue, ADR, the exclamations. There you go, mm. Richard Donner, solved. Uh, go just... get a kebab. Yeah. Uh, production designer J. Michael River said that in a national public radio interview, before shooting the first scene with the prop map, he thought it looked good, but not old enough. So in his hotel room, he aged it with coffee, and when he couldn't find paint, his own blood. Yes. Now, he, he doesn't go into detail about exactly how the blood was used, but that map had genuine production designer blood on it. That's some record I did see it. <laughs> Which, in fairness, is probably why Paddy Duke threw it out. She's like, oh, is this old bloody bit of paper? Ugh. Oh, this is Jay's blood. <laughs> um, One-Eyed Willie's skull was made from real bone. Hell yeah. Mm. Wait, I'm sorry. Is that just the, the wording, the awkward wording in the movie database? Is it is a real skull, not a skull made of other parts of found bone. It just says real bone. I <laughs> okay. I could do more research, but I only trawl that. It's a real one skull page. then. I know that a lot of the the um, skeletons were were plastic models. There was some trivia points about um, how they actually made the skeletons and made them look that aged, uh, but they were mostly plastic based. But one-eyed Willie's skull, made from real bone, apparently. So. Is it like there's a lot more real skeletons out there than you think, honestly? Mm. Yeah, well, they're like in everyone's bo bodies for starters. Yeah, <laughs> very <laughs> scary. <laughs> but no, in doctors' offices and things, like mm. um, my my boss, who was a nurse, I was like surprised when she first started practicing. Um, how many times she'd be like, "Oh, that's like a yeah, like a cool model skeleton." Like having a look, checking out the bones, and then would get deep enough in and be like, "This is a real person. <laughs> mm. This is plastic." Um, and especially strangely enough in Hollywood and theater, there's a lot of people who donate their skulls for Hamlet specifically and like, make me Yorick. That'll be a cool way to live on. And people do it for the, um, was it him? The Royal Shakespeare Theater Company has about 13 real skulls. They put on rotation for Yorick. That many people have donated their skulls or I guess a relative skull possibly to be in a real theater production. 
mm. which is a really interesting way to live on. Yeah. When I die, I'm going to request that my skull be used for anything except Hamlet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I want my skull to I be... I want to be on the part... <laughs> I want to be in the importance of being earnest. Try and work that in. <laughs> Cecily's, like, digging in the garden and goes, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, she goes, oh, excuse me. Would you like some skull or some ribs? I'll have the ribs. Throws the skull at her. Uh, yeah, absolutely beautiful. Perfect. I want to be in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland because they've already got one real skeleton there. And they could just pop me in and be like, oh, it's a new skull. And if they clean it really well and make it really white so it looks shit, like, oh, they didn't even bother aging that prop. That's yeah. just me <laughs> hanging out. John Matusak's makeup, because uh, he played Sloth, uh, took five hours to complete. One of his eyes, which was out of place on the face, was mechanically operated off screen by remote control. Uh, someone would count down and Matsuak would blink his other eye so that they were synchronised. Uh, the cast was told not to get him wet in scenes outside of the pirate ship. Unfortunately, he did get wet quite frequently and that would delay filming, usually by a day. His ears were quite impressive as well. They almost yeah. seemed to like Dumbo a lot. Um, he must have been boiling in that thing. Mm. Probably. It's like they should have just like cast an actor who could fulfill that role on their own rather than a guy who needed like monstrous makeup. Possibly. But um, yeah, they obviously had a very particular idea of what they wanted and they were like, we can do it as long as there's no water. And they're like, ooh, a... he, he does jump off a pirate ship at least once. So can we? <laughs> and there are waterfalls and yeah. ponds. It changed in dripping room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was not maybe not. the best not... for foam latex. Yeah, not ideal. Uh, during filming, Martha Plimpton, who played Steph, um, made a bet with director Richard Donner that she would stop biting her nails. Uh, she did this and Donna paid up several years later when they were doing DVD commentary. Oh, cute. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it doesn't say how much, but you know, and enough that it took he... her three years to save up to pay off this girl. Yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was a considerable fee, I imagine. Mm. That already avoided her until the commentary day. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, give me my $10 Donna. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm off, I'm off filming with Spielberg. I don't yeah. have any cash on me. You got a banker's check? Yeah, just call, if you listen to the DVD commentary, you can actually hear her tightening the thumb screws until he yields. So. <laughs> uh, according she... to the director, Richard Donner, uh, in an interview, um, producer Steven Spielberg instructed the cast members to act cold and distant towards Donner on the last week of filming, which puzzled him. Uh, shortly after filming wrapped, Donna went to his house in Hawaii, ran into a frenzied neighbor who took up his entire day. When he did eventually get home, the entire cast was there to celebrate with a cookout. Spielberg flew them over to Hawaii on the promise that they not speak a word of the surprise to Donna, which resulted in them acting a bit off with him for the last week because they were all <laughs> desperately trying not to spoil Aww. the surprise. <laughs> oh dear. Mm. Uh, speaking of Donna, you can actually hear him giggling during this film. Um, when they were filming the scene where Chunk starts crying, when the ice cream gets taken off him, um, he started to laugh and it's still in the film. If you listen carefully, you can hear him giggling off screen when Jake takes the plastic spoon off Chunks and he starts to cry. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just Richard Donner just loves laughing at crying children. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Good suck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, the final bit of trivia, as you mentioned before, Scott, this screenplay being written by Christopher Columbus, uh, he also wrote Gremlins. Uh, and of course, there is a Gremlins Easter egg in this film when Chunks called the police officer and the officer's like, oh, what about that time, uh, that prank that you called us with the creatures that multiply when you throw water on them? Which is just a really lovely nod. Oh, I didn't realise that. That's so cute. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really good way of summing up this film, is that this film is so cute. It is, it is, even though it's a dark film about pirate treasure and there's gangster murders and, um, all, you know, the Troy trying to look up the girl's skirt and he gets his jumper back. I don't know what he's complaining about. You have all, you have all these dark things that are happening, but the film is, it's cute and it's wholesome and it's really quite delightful. 
I know what Troy's complaining about. Andy, you goonies! <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a bit strange, but it, it, it was fine. It worked. Oh, I thought so it was good. It's the most quoted line in my house for 10 years. Mm. Uh, I, I, I did find it very funny, though. Uh, the, the three young jocks just hanging around a wishing well, trying to look cool. cool. <laughs> Coolest kids in town. <laughs> hey, we got everything already. We're going to hog up this supernatural resource and try and get some... I hope no poor people come here. They ain't getting no wishes tonight, baby. <laughs> uh, oh, a really, really strange moment in, in a very strange film. Uh, but all that's left for us to do is to score the Goonies. And Anna, you get to go first because it was your first time watching the Goonies. What would you give it out of 10? Um, Jesus, I hate this part. Um, <laughs> I think an eight. I think uh, it was really um, captivating. I definitely I like had my attention the whole time. I think maybe to a modern audience, perhaps it felt a little long. There were times where I was like, I would probably make this a bit faster, but I would absolutely show my nephew this. Like he would absolutely love it. And I have no doubt that that held up. So I think, yeah, a round eight for me. All right. What about yourself, Scott? Uh, it's a 9.5. Mm. <laughs> childhood nostalgia. Hell yeah. yeah. That, that will bump up those scores somewhat, but, um, <laughs> but it, it's entirely fair. I mean, it's a really lovely uh, it, it's a really lovely film, and um, there are so many little moments that that kind of just build it into this great big piece. And you can you can just feel the message it's trying to impart on you, and the the connection in the community it's trying to impart. And that's something that films struggle with sometimes. And this film absolutely nails it. And I think that is um, is really really quite lovely. So for me, uh, I'm going to give it eight. Um, secreted boxing gloves out of 10 because um, I I really had a good time watching this and yeah Data's sort of Inspector Gadget kind of routine was um, was just one of many cherries on this particular cake um, a really lovely film Scott and Anna thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club no worries you're having me and for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Hey, you want to get in touch with us? Probably. If you do, then there's a number of ways to do that. We can be found on Facebook. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there. Uh, leave us a message. Leave us a like. Uh, send us in your own truffle shuffles. Uh, actually, no, please don't. That was actually quite horrifying. And uh, I'm not sure I want to see many people doing that. Um, Scott might, though. He's wiggling. He's like, no, Scott, put your shirt no! back on. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, but yes, uh, there's the Facebook page. We're also available on Patreon. If you want to become a member of the club, get a couple of extra bonus features, whether or not they're truffle shuffles, we cannot reveal. Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. And of course, make sure you're subscribed over on iTunes or SoundCloud or Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club, hit subscribe, and you'll get a fresh episode each and every week. But that's all for this week. So until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.